0: Good morning, everybody. Um, So good to be together. I do love these combined services when we get to have them. uh, There'll be a number of these uh, throughout the year, so you can expect this. Um, Our next one will be sometime in July. I can't remember the exact date, but I love that this is part of our rhythm to get back together. So it's Pentecost Sunday. Um, Christians around the world are remembering the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus told us that His presence would be poured out in the Holy Spirit onto His church. Um, He actually told His disciples, it would. this has already been said in the service, it would be better for Him to go so that He could give this gift. Jesus had been with them, but now God Himself would be in them by His Spirit. So Christians around the world are, are celebrating this. Um, I have a ministry coach. Uh, his name is Daniel Yang. And for the last number of years, he's been Baptist. But he made a post this morning that made me chuckle. He said, it's Pentecost Sunday all around the world. And for Pentecostals, it's just Sunday. <laughs> so uh, the Christians all over the world, no matter their tradition, are, are uh, gathered this morning or last night or this weekend. Uh, to celebrate the promised Holy Spirit. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to some of the account that that we already read in worship today in Acts chapter 2. If you could turn there, Acts chapter 2, it will also be on the screen, so you can follow along there. Um, But before we get to that, I just have one more announcement I wanted to put in front of you, and it's that uh, Tuesday nights for the summer... Our network, you know, the TAB is part of an extended network of ministries in the Pittsburgh region. Our network is kind of resurrecting these midweek worship gatherings uh, throughout the summer. So we used to do this years ago. It was kind of like a revival for us uh, to be able to get together and encounter Jesus together. God would speak to us. Uh, Many, many leaders at the TAB over the years and the network over the years were encountered in these gatherings. We just kind of realized that we missed this time together during the summer. So we're bringing it back um, on Tuesday nights um, from 6.30 to 8. And this week is the first time that we're getting together. And that will go on for seven or eight weeks. There may be a break, I think, July 4th week. Uh, We'll let you know. But that will meet down at Celebration We'll take communion together, create some space to encounter the Spirit. So anybody is welcome. You don't need to RSVP for that. So we would love to see you there. So I just wanted to put that onto your radar. So my sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different because of some of the emotional space that I increasingly find myself in in this transition. So we're still figuring things out. You can come Wednesday night to um, you know, learn some more information or ask any questions you have. I announced now a number of months ago that eventually I'll be transitioning out of this lead pastor role. Um, but I think what that's made me do is it's made me reflect deeply on what it's meant to be in a role like this. Um, to be considered the lead pastor of a church. And I... And I think um, I just find myself reflecting on on what that means. Um, let me tell you. Recently, I was with about thirty or so church planners. Most of them planting in low income communities. A lot of them planting in multi ethnic communities. And uh, we were gathered at this church where we were hearing and learning from different church planners. It was a great gathering, um, but. Uh, at one point, this church planter started to talk to these other church planters, and listen. These these church planters are re- most of them are laboring really in difficult contexts. Um, waiting to see, you know, Jesus break through in some kind of way. And this church planner's story was just different. I'm not putting it down. It's just an unusual story. It's not how most churches in the world got started. He was given a really significant budget, a 60,000-foot facility, 300 people, and this is, you know, how he planted the church. And even in our network, when we're talking about church planning, we're not really talking about that. I don't know of anybody who has a story like that. Um, But this was his story, and I'm not putting that down. It was just his Story, but he came in and he's talking about his giftings in multiplication and evangelism and all these different kinds of things. And someone asks a question: You know, what about the pastoral or the shepherding gift? You here at the Gospel Tab, we talk a lot about fivefold ministry, fivefold gifts. If you don't know what that is, show up at a training sometime soon when we hold one. But he was saying he saw himself as apostolic as pioneering in new places and planting churches in new places and laying foundations and not as very pastoral or shepherding. I understand that that pastoral shepherding kind of nurturing gift is not everybody's gift. But somebody asked him, you know, uh, like, what about the pastoral or the shepherding in the life of the church? And, and just real quick, young guy who honestly has been given a lot And his answer just real quickly was like, listen, I've only been to the hospital to visit people like twice. And it was because, you know, my friend had brain cancer. He was like, I don't do that kind of stuff, you know? And there was something in me, just excuse me for a second, but there was something in me that was kind of like, you little punk, you know what I mean? (laughs) And, And the reason is those things aren't exactly my gifts either. But I would not trade the experience, especially for my gifts. I would not trade the experience I've had here at the tab for anything. I have had to go to the hospital a lot. I wanted to say to this guy, maybe you need to be around more sick people. You know, um, maybe your budget and your facility insulates you from some of the reality of suffering people. You know, and I'm just, I'm just so grateful. Uh, for this opportunity that I've had. It's true. Some of those gifts are not my strongest gifts either. But so often God uses us in our weaknesses, right? Not in our strengths. He doesn't just use us in our giftings. He also uses us in the things that we're not good in. As a matter of fact, when you encourage each other into ministry, please don't just encourage each other into each other's giftings. I know this sounds like a paradox, but sometimes we're like, no, you're gifted at this, so you just need to do this. You're gifted this, you just need to do this. I think that misses a whole other side of that coin, which is that God often uses us in the places where we're not gifted. He often uses us in the places where we're weak. His grace gets to be on display, not our gifts in those places. So sometimes we need to encourage each other to to serve in the places and the things that we're actually not that good at. It is true the places where we're gifted bring us a lot of joy but I've learned more about the power of Jesus, speaking of Pentecost Sunday in the places where I'm not so great at things, right? And God meets us and works with us in those places. Anyway, I'm super reflective in this season and so um, I'm, I'm processing those emotions and so, so some of this today may sound a little bit like that All right. But I think there is something in this passage for us today. And some of the theme of it has to do with not only God's empowerment, but the disorientation of that empowerment. And how God meets us in those places and comforts us in those places. This has been stirring. Some of what I'm going to say today has been stirring in me for months now. If you were at our Good Friday service, and I realize a lot of you may not have been. But if you were at our Good Friday service, um, I shared a few words about Simon of Cyrene, this guy who ended up carrying Jesus' cross. And uh, some of these same themes were stirring in me um, even back then. So it's where, where I went in prayer for this week. Um, I had a dream recently. I'm not going to tell you about the dream. I've had some really powerful dreams lately. Um, I'm not going to get into the details because it's not exactly the point. But in this dream, I was with some of the leaders of our church. And there was this theme that showed up in the dream about the Salvation Army. You know, these... this. I don't know what you know about the history of the Salvation Army, but it was really a revival movement that happened in the late 1800s. And... Um, And just had this heart for the poor. Uh, Many, many times, really all the time, revival movements end up having a heart for the poor because this is what Jesus is like. So as he manifests himself, um, people grow in compassion for the poor. And so the Salvation Army, all these years, like I don't know how much you've been around the Salvation Army. Chelsea's actually on the board for the Salvation Army here in Beaver County, my wife. And our kids have been served by the Salvation Army. We've had some great interactions with them. Um, But the Salvation Army knows what they've been called to. And it's to the poor and the oppressed, and they plant themselves in those neighborhoods, and they feed people and clothe people and house people. Um, They're really good at what they do. But the Salvation Army was founded by two apostolic leaders named William and Catherine Booth in the UK, in the the worst part of the Industrial Revolution, um, when people were really suffering in the slums of London. And after I woke up from this dream, and there was this Salvation Army theme to the dream, and God was speaking to me, and I think to some of our leaders through that, um, I, I like I want to Wikipedia everything all the time. So, uh, so I started like looking up the Salvation Army, and there was this part of their history that stuck out to me. Do you know that when William and Catherine Booth first started to gather workers to go into the slums and to gather the poor and care for the poor and feed the poor. And Do you know what the reaction of the prevailing church in the UK was to that? Uh, and by the way, it wasn't just marked by activism to the poor. It was also marked by fervent prayer and expecting the Spirit to move. They had this phrase, blood and fire, meaning you know, we believe in the blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, Do you know how the church responded? Quite literally, there were some in the church, I'm talking baptized Christians, who at some points, actually attacked Salvation Army volunteers in the streets. So much so that some Salvation Armyists, as they're called, even still, Salvationists, rather, some Salvationists back then lost their lives at the hands of people who were trying to put this down and stop this revival. Baptized Christians killing other Christians in the streets because they were so disoriented over the way that God was leading these folks. You can't read the history of revival or the history of God's Spirit working without that dynamic showing up. And I guess today I just want to speak a word of comfort to you. That as God leads us into uncharted territory, as He takes us into places, that we are in the lineage of people who paid even with their lives so that the church of God could steward the presence of God, so that the church of God could be about what Jesus wants the church to be in its essence the poor and prayer, and service in our community. There's people all throughout history who paid with their lives just so that the church could be what it is meant to be in its essence. We stand in that lineage. But that lineage also hurts. Not everyone lost their lives, but plenty of people have experienced exclusion and were mocked. Many, many people who led revival throughout history, who led renewal movements in the church, were not appreciated until after their lives ended I'm going to say a little bit more about William and Catherine Booth in a little bit. But that that dream has been making me reflect on this, on kind of the cost of following Jesus. The cost of what it means to want renewal in His church. The cost of what it means to say what happened in Acts chapter 2, we want to see happen in our midst. We want to be a Spirit-filled people who are following the voice of Jesus. So, let me read this account. We already read part of it today. This is the classic Pentecost text. Pentecost this Jewish religious festival, and at this time in Jerusalem, um, all of these Jews have gathered to celebrate this festival. Jesus has already died, been resurrected, spent some time with his disciples. He's ascended to heaven, and he gave them this promise that they should wait in Jerusalem in prayer until the Holy Spirit came. The disciples who were left have been waiting in fervent prayer for days and days, and then this happens, Acts chapter 2. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language?' They have had too much wine. Now, I just want you to pay attention to the responses of the crowd in this passage. The disciples have been gathering in prayer. It has to be a season of disorientation for them. Jesus had been with them, they had experienced the profound disappointment and fear of the crucifixion. And now Jesus is raised from the dead. They're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Um, And then the Spirit comes. And this is how the Spirit comes. There's a sound like wind. There's flames that are appearing on top of their heads. And they find themselves with this ability to speak other languages that they didn't have before. They're caught up in this ecstatic moment of receiving what the the Spirit of God is giving. And by the way, Jesus had told them the Spirit would come. He didn't quite go into all this detail. How the Spirit would come. He just told them to wait. Wait. And to see what the Spirit of God would do. I I, I have a slide here. Notice how the crowd responds. And by the way, since those gathered in Jerusalem are watching this and seeing it, it tells me that this gathering of uh, about 120 disciples or so has spilled out into the streets. That caught up in this ecstatic moment of being filled with the Spirit and receiving the gift that God has given, that this gathering has now somehow poured into a, a public place, a balcony or into the streets or something, so people are seeing it. They're watching, and the crowd is gathering. And here's the responses. Bewilderment, just confusion. In verse 6, this is confusing to people. Others are utterly amazed. It's like, wow, this is amazing. You know what's happening? Like they're speaking in languages. That they don't know, aren't these just Galileans and somehow they know these other languages? Some, and this is the realest one for me, amazed and perplexed. You know, so it's like, this is amazing, it's also kind of weird, you know? It's amazing, it's also confusing. I feel like a lot of God following God is that right there. Amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? This is actually a humble response. You know, there's a theme in scripture of God showing up and doing unexpected things or announcing unexpected things and people asking humble questions in response. And it's interesting, God almost never answers the questions. But he does respond to the humility. He does, like, lean in to the person who's just asking, what does this mean, and who doesn't rush to a judgment. Some, however, made fun of them. And said, and this really gives us a picture of what's going on, that they must have had too much wine. That gives you a picture of what these somehow, this prayer meeting, these gathering, this gathering of disciples, they look drunk somehow. And so some are, are accusing them of this. Now, um, when we read passages like this, we always tend to read ourselves into the right part of the story right? Oh, I definitely would have been in the humble. Verse 12 is my home, right? Like, what does this mean? I'm humble, right? Um, I feel like we do this, like when we read about Jesus and the Pharisees. I had a theology professor years ago who would say all of us like criticize the Pharisees how bad they are. I used to sing this song um, about—I forget all the words—but it's like the Sadducees are sad. You see, you know what I mean? Like I, I learned that in in you know um, uh, Sunday school. What's that called? Sunday school. So I learned some of that in Sunday school, um, and we're always reading ourselves into the righteous part of the story. But the truth is, my theology professor used to tell us if you go to church and if you're at all involved in church leadership, and if most of us would have acted just like the Pharisees in the presence of the Son of God, most of us would have. Um, I feel like there's a similar dynamic because here's the deal here's the thing about the Pharisees in the scripture they're trying to protect. The religion that's been handed down from their fathers. See, we assign them the worst motivations. And some of them had some pretty bad motivations. But at best, they were trying to protect what had been handed to them. They were trying to be faithful to the word of God. But it put them on the wrong side of the son of God. That's sobering, isn't it? I feel like in, in modern American history, we do the same thing with the civil rights movement. Or other movements that we perceive as just in retrospect. It's like, oh, I definitely would have been marching. Like, I've heard so many white people who say, have you seen those pictures? There weren't many white people marching, right? (laughs) There weren't many white people showing up marching. The truth is, most of us would have been too afraid, or we would have just flat out been on the wrong side of the story if we had been a product of that time. And here's why. It's because in every age, most of the crowd ends up on the wrong side of things. In every age, that happens. And so I think there's actually something humble about admitting, right, that in history, a lot of times we would have ended up on the wrong side of things, and it lets us examine that we might be on the wrong side of things now, right, and say there's something, it's always easier in retrospect to see what's righteous and good, right, it's harder to see it in the present, so I really, we can leave those responses up, Chris, if you can put them up, so I really resonate with all of these responses here. Honestly, I've been in all of them when it comes to how God moves in my life or in the life of our church. And can we can we just put ourselves in a posture of compassion for this crowd? Because I think the compassion of Jesus does show up in this for the crowd. But let's just think about this for a second. Like, these are good, observant Jews who are here to do the right thing, for goodness sake. They're here to celebrate this religious festival Now, imagine these people are acting drunk, right? Would you immediately assign to that, oh, that must be God? I can understand verse 13, right? If you've never seen that before, a good observant Jew might really struggle with that, right? Here's the thing about speaking in tongues. Um, You know, if you hang around, like, the tab long enough, you'll hear someone speak in tongues. It's something that we, how God works among us here. Um, either in prayer or someone will deliver a word in tongues or something like that. But a lot of you, before you came around the tab, you had never seen that before. Well, imagine, and you can probably imagine the disorientation, the first time you heard someone speak in, a, in another language, in a worship gathering or prayer. Some of you have been on that emotional journey. Well, imagine this with these Jews who have gathered, because here's why. Do you know, we really don't have any verse in the Old Testament that predicts people speaking in other languages like this. There are some things in Jewish history. There's this story that the rabbis used to tell that when God spoke from Sinai, the people for a minute heard some of what God was saying in all of these different languages. But that's just tradition. It's not in our Bibles. So this means God is showing up in a way that we can't find a chapter and verse for. Imagine that disorienting. So the person who's really into the Bible is flipping out right now. Because there's no Bible verse for this. There's no verse they can point to that says this is God. But God is showing up in this unexpected way. It is in some ways, by the way, a reversal of the curse at the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story in Genesis where God confused their languages and now he's bringing unity to people in his presence. But you'd have to really connect those dots. I don't think think anyone in the moment is like, oh yeah, God's reversing the curse at Babel in the book of Genesis, right? It's like nobody knows what's happening here, right? People are caught up in these ecstasy, or just this, that these people are experiencing it, but right now the observers who have not yet received the Spirit, they're not feeling or experiencing anything. Have, have you ever been there? They're sitting here watching this, being like, yeah, that doesn't connect with me at all. You know, in America, we would just be like, that's not my church. I'm going to go make another church. <laughs> right? I'm not feeling what they're feeling. Right? I'm going to form another church, form a theology around what I'm feeling, and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's this disorientation. I actually, in these cases, like in Acts chapter 2, I like the word apocalyptic. And here's why that word apocalyptic signifies another world invading and colliding with this world. Acts chapter 2 is an apocalyptic event because another world, heaven, where people are caught up in the ecstasy of God's joy, where people are unified despite the languages that divide them, where people experience oneness with God. That world is invading this world, people's religious routines. That's what's invading here. And here's the reflection part in my last few minutes. Man, all of these response, bewilderment, utterly amaze amazed and perplexed, somehow ever made fun of them. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know this about my story, but some of the things that even happened here at the Gospel Tab in college, in Bible college, when I thought I knew everything, um, I used to make fun of people who acted like the way they, we do sometimes in our services. I used to make fun of people like that with my friends because I thought I knew everything, because Bible college gave me this false confidence to think that I could know the mysteries of God because I had 15 credit hours one semester. <laughs> so here's my reflection on disorientation. I mean, I have felt all these things, all these years in ministry, and I have no reason to think it's going to stop. You know, when Chelsea and I made the choice to move to Aliquippa, I'm also reflective because we just moved back to Franklin Avenue where we lived when we first moved to Aliquippa. But when Chelsea and I first moved to Aliquippa, of course it it was disorientation for us, different place, different culture, all that kind of stuff. But it was disorientation for many of the people in our our orbit. Uh, One of the things Chelsea and I have really had to forgive in those early years was navigating all of the terribly insensitive comments from friends. We're moving to the place where we were moving. They couldn't see God in it. Bewilderment. There is this thing, friends, you need to know. If you follow God's call in your life, eventually you may be vindicated, maybe not. I'll say more about that in a second. But if you follow God's call on your life, there's these incredibly lonely seasons because people who would otherwise care about you are so bewildered that they don't know how to be there for you. They don't know how to support you. And you not only have to navigate their insensitive comments, you hear their silence as well. When they don't speak blessing over what God is doing, but just because they're too bewildered. Um, I'm saying this because I think that deserves compassion. Um, I remember, you know, back in the day, Jim is here, and Jim Eaton and I co-pastored here for like eight years, And one of the first things when Jim and I started co-pastoring, we were like, we need to incorporate more prayer into the service. And so in different ways, and not everything we tried worked, but we were trying to incorporate more prayer into the service. And um, I remember that was kind of the first wave of people saying that they didn't want to be part of our church. And uh, and this comment reached my ears that just said, like, um, someone had said it. It was actually someone, this is the disorientation, it's a great person. But they said, yeah, we just pray too much. And it's uncomfortable. I remember being in Jim's office and saying to Jim, wow, there's a cost for this thing. There's a cost to lead to God's presence. There's a cost to making Jesus like the center of his church. And I don't think I realized that. You know, when I first started, I didn't think I realized like all the responses, all the emotional territory that was going to take us into. Then our church started to say... We can't just pay attention to some communities. We need to pay attention to all the communities that surrounded us, that included Aliquippa. We hadn't had a presence there for a long time. That was super disorienting to people. People were all these things. Bewilderment. How could this be God? Utterly amazed. This is amazing. Amazing and perplexed. You know? Some just mocking. All of these things, you know, happened. And then we realized that part of the fullness of the gospel was to be a people committed to justice, to amplify the voices of the poor, and to get involved in justice issues. Our ministry started to do that, and we started to open our Bibles and see God's heart for the poor and the oppressed in the scriptures, super disorienting for people. Um, and then, although... Our family of churches, the Christian Missionary Alliance, in its whole history had had women preaching and had encouraged women to preach openly, and our leaders still encourage women to preach. Women had not preached from this pulpit for a long, long time, so we started to do that. And I remember standing you know, at the back here with someone, just a good person, good person, not an evil person, good person who was utterly bewildered at what we were doing. And just wasn't sure that they could stick with it. And having this conversation of all of these people's emotions. Wasn't sure. An observant Christian. Just not sure how this could be God. And then the Spirit of God started to work among us. And some of us started to speak in tongues. And as we were on mission, our fervency in worship changed. And we started to see people healed. And all of the... I remember... There's no way I could put into words all the conversations over the years with people who are experiencing this full range of emotion, excitement, bewilderment. It was exciting last time, not this time. I mean just all the things right that that are happening. And now here we find ourselves as a gospel tab family feeling like God has spoken to us something about release and smallness, something about multiplication. And all of these emotions are present again, aren't they? okay to acknowledge it, that all of these emotions are present. Again, excitement, but bewilderment. This feels like God, but is it? All of these kinds of things. And as part of that release, we've we've stepped into this commitment that the best thing that we can do is give ourselves away. It's something we've done for years, but now you are giving me away. And it creates all these emotions. Bewilderment, and amazement, and amazed and perplexed, and all of these kinds of things, right, are present. I want you to know, even though I've been on the leading end all these years, and all, and all these places, and it can give a big qualifier. When Pentecost happened, that was like God himself, just like, boom. This was, all these things I'm describing are like really broken people, myself, being like, yeah, we think it's God, right? <laughs> um, and so it's a lot messier, right? Um, but even when it's like pure Holy Spirit fire, all of these things right, are still present. Here's my reflection on this after all these years of leading in these spaces. Friends, I want you to know, and I hope it's a comfort to you, I have less anxiety in these spaces than I've ever had in 15 years of ministry. And that might not be where you're at, and I understand that. But I want you to know my testimony is that I have less anxiety because after all the worrying together, after all the praying together, after all the conversations and emails, after all the leadership team meetings where we were wrestling through these things, after all of these things that we've been through as a Gospel Tab family, I do have this testimony that God is good. And I would rather have a move of God in our midst right? Then, then be absent of these emotions. If this is the cost of what it is to have God at work in our midst, then I want to pay that cost. But I want you to know, Tab family, you have paid that cost. And I know some of you are newer to the church. It's kind of like an in-house conversation for a moment. But you guys have paid that cost to the church. I, I said, or paid it to, for, for God's movement, I said it to the leadership team on Thursday night, you I mean, when I first came on staff here at the TAB, I was hired as the youth pastor. And one of the first things TAB leadership at the time let me do was they let me build this youth development organization called Alquipa Impact in the city. And they let us serve those kids. Do you know how unheard of that is? That a church would hire someone and not demand all their time. The church would hire someone. This was 15 years ago now. The church would hire someone and release them to to the community. It almost never happens. And here's what I think has happened on a spiritual level at the TAB. Because that right there has been a fundamental tension at the TAB all these years. How do we care for ourselves and step into the calling that God has for us? How do we make sure we're covering our needs and make sure that we step into an ever-expanding harvest field? That's just a tension we live in at the TAB right all these years but our elders back then embraced that 15 years ago and they released me and here's here's just on this one thing just reflect on this for a minute because of that one decision that a group of elders were willing to make 15 years ago we have reached thousands of kids in alopepa there are people here today who came to christ through alopepa impact There are families who have come to faith. through. I know that costs something for the tab. But it's worth it. And here's where God has been faithful. Every time we've stepped into this, He has written a story that's beyond what could have happened if we just hung on to everything. If we just made it all our own. If we just tried to control it. Right? God, the cause of everything we've given to Him, He has not wasted it. And friends, as you release me, and in a sense, it's true, you are releasing an age, an era at the Gospel Tab. It is true. Um, we are kind of reaching the end of a season of our history. But guys, God, you keep paying. You keep laying that, you keep, like those Salvation Army members, you keep going to the streets and serving the poor. God will not waste any of that, whatever the cost is for you and for us. Um, how do we keep doing it? Well, we've had this prophetic word recently about first love. I love that prophetic word, but I want you to know, our first love, like for me, my first love is not Alquip Impact. My first love is not the gospel tab. And it shouldn't be yours either. You know what that is? If we do that, and our first love can't be this last era at the Gospel tab, if that's our first love, it is worshiping the created thing rather than the Creator who is to be blessed forever. Our first love is Jesus. And sometimes God has a way of creating bewilderment and perplexed things and, and making us uncomfortable so that he draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into first love with him. He has a way of centering himself in us again and again and again. I've got to wrap up here in five minutes. Um. John, if you could come play. In early sermons, I have, I have all my sermons on my computer from all these years, 15 years of sermons. When I go back and look at my early sermons, I'm like, man, you were a judgmental little punk. I'll call myself a punk. And I had a way of preaching these moralistic sermons about mission and justice that sounded like, you better get out there. You better get out there serving people. You better get out there speaking up for the poor and Man, some of you were here back then. Weren't you tired when I was preaching that way? That's exhausting. Um, I think over time, the gospel settles into our hearts. And I feel something different. I think 15 years ago, I would have turned to Acts chapter 2 and been like, you got to pay this stuff and try harder to pay it. Dig deeper into your pockets. You, you got to get over it. You got to get over your feelings. You got to get over there. I want to say something different to you that in the gospel... I read Acts chapter 2 and the varied responses of this crowd and then Peter standing up and giving them the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come and, and that the Spirit is coming. And what I see is Jesus through Peter speaking good news to all these emotions that are present. And friends forget about the tab even just in your own life as you follow the call of God on your life you've probably felt all of these things as you've done the thing that Jesus has asked you to do um, I want you to know that Jesus is there to preach and to speak good news to all those things to the places where you have paid for a move of God and it hurts you He loves you in those places that's my testimony He preaches good news in those places Peter says that He gives times of refreshing in those places. He doesn't have to do that. You know, it would just be our duty to, to pay for these things. But he just comes back with his love again and again. So I don't know where you're at in your life or as a TAB family. If you're bewildered, Jesus stands to preach good news. And, there's, and here's the thing. As the crowd listened, they were on the verge of the Spirit coming on them too. <laughs> They were on the verge of more for themselves. This was never meant just for people to watch a few experiences. Now this was going to be for all of them. They were on the verge of something bigger, something more. I believe that for your life, but I believe it for the gospel tab too. You're actually on the verge of something bigger and something more, but it is something that God will have to do. Um, I, was, I woke up this morning, and this verse was in my mind from Colossians. Here, real quick. Colossians 1, when Paul says this about his service for the church, he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. This is how Paul describes ministry for the church. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh. Listen, very strange language here. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. How could something be lacking in regard to Christ's suffering? Doesn't make any sense. Didn't Jesus pay it all? All to him I owe. It's true. We sing that song. It's true. So, why, why is Paul saying this? I fill up what is missing or lacking in regard to Christ's suffering. It's because, and well, there's a lot I could say about this, but it's because this thing that Jesus has done for us at the cross is not just transactional. It's not like, okay, he died and now we get it. Some people have a way of talking about the cross that way, like it's a, I don't know, like it's finances or something. And that is an aspect of it, but it's something so much more than this. Jesus suffers in part because he wants us to suffer with him. He doesn't just want to suffer for us. He actually wants us to suffer with Him and in suffering with us to redeem suffering. And you know this as a parent, if you're a parent. Is there any way to really raise your kids and love your kids without suffering? Is there any way to do it without calling them to suffer? Well, this is what God does for us. He's in it with us. And somehow what is lacking in suffering, the story of Jesus' suffering for the world that is still playing out and redeeming suffering and hurting communities and hurting people, he has invited us into that. He's invited us into these emotions. Here's the end of William Booth's story, and I'll wrap up with this. Do you know at the very end of his life, William Booth, um, uh, he was... um, Oh, this was at his funeral. I just remembered. Do you know, his funeral happened with the, with the state's approval. The queen was there. Um, after all of that misunderstanding and bewilderment and all of this, the queen is sitting there when he's buried. Now, can I tell you, William Booth is actually one of the lucky ones, or maybe is that even lucky in the scope of the kingdom? I don't even know, probably not because that's probably some of his reward, right? Um, but God does have a way of vindicating. God does have a way of eventually saying, like, this is mine. This person's mine. I chose them, right? And friends, he's going to do that for you. I've, I told the leadership team on Thursday night, there is a sense in which, maybe not, maybe what I'm saying is just total trash, but But, like, there's a sense of which, at least it's what some people told us over the years, that the tab really could have been like a mighty church. Like, we had the ingredients in the mix, like good leaders and good music and, I don't know, stuff that, honestly, good speakers, stuff that, in the end, doesn't really matter. Um, And here we are, like, choosing weakness again. And choosing bewilderment again and choosing, and I just, I guess, friends, I just want to tell you on the bottom of my heart that wherever you are in that, I think this is what I was trying to say Good Friday, wherever you are in that, wherever Jesus is calling you in that, it's okay to feel these things. It's normal to feel these things. These things happen in moves of God just because you're feeling these emotions on whatever part of the spectrum you're on doesn't mean that God isn't in it. And Jesus is there to minister to it. He's there to speak to you in it. He's there to comfort you in it. Right? Paul, did you catch that in Colossians? Paul actually says, "I rejoice in my suffering." How does that begin to happen in the life of someone that they begin to rejoice in what they suffer for the church? I rejoice in filling up in my flesh what is lacking. In Christ's suffering. I rejoice in suffering. That way. How does that begin to happen in someone's life? It's because our suffering every bit of it, every bit of bewilderment, every bit of confusion every bit of, all of it begins to be covered with the goodness of God and God writes a story right of how good he is in our lives alright? Okay, I'm done